Welcome to this video interview, the fifth in the series, uh, hosted by Palestine Deep Dive. Uh, this time with our special guest, Jeremy Corbyn, former leader of the UK Labour Party and a long-standing supporter of Palestinian rights. This week, we ask what it is that motivates Jeremy Corbyn to keep on campaigning for the Palestinian cause and how it also may be possible to just step up international solidarity for the Palestinians at the time of a pandemic. And we're also asking these questions uh, as the new Israeli government prepares to, uh, as it promises, annex uh, at least 30% of the occupied territories in the, in the West Bank. I'm Mark Seddon. I've been the UN correspondent for Al Jazeera and I've worked for the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and for the President of the UN General Assembly, Maria Fernanda Espinosa. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for joining us from London. Um, My pleasure. I'd, I'd very much like to, to begin by asking you, I mean, what, what was it that first got you interested uh, as a young campaigner in the issue of Palestine and Palestinian rights? It's a general study of history and of um, injustices and the complexities of the uh, post-war world that have always fascinated me, but also going back into the narratives of um, colonial policy and the way that colonial policies have affected what happens today. So in a general sense, you look at the map of Africa, essentially most of it decided by the Congress of Berlin in 1884. And then you look at the map of the Middle East, most of it actually decided at the Treaty of Versailles after the First World War and the way in which the big powers divided up the whole area. And then you look at the terrible, tragic history of Jewish people in Europe, the Nazis, the Holocaust, and the deaths of six million people. And then look at the way in which there was justice being sought for Jewish people, hence the establishment of the State of Israel in uh, 1948. And then look again at the Balfour Declaration and look again at the um, rights of Palestinian people. And I remember my first visit to Israel and to Palestine was um, uh, in the 90s, early 90s, I think it was. And I met a woman who was um, living in a small house in Gaza. And um, she was actually almost exactly the same age as my late mother. And um, I asked her about her life. And her life had been growing up in um, Jaffa being expelled in 1948 when the State of Israel was established. And she went to Gaza, as did many, many others. And she'd lived there ever since. And she'd had um, four or five children. And um, none of them were with her. One was in prison in Israel. The others were abroad in various places. And she was describing her life and the role of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency and how she felt hemmed in and oppressed by all this. And that was, at one level, 
a very human story of a very nice lady. And um, I, I've always felt that the Palestinian people have been treated very badly, wronged by history. And then on visits to refugee camps in um, Jordan, but also in Lebanon, going to Sabra and Chantilla with the late um, Sir Gerald Kaufman, who was, uh, as you know, a Labour MP, who died fairly recently, a couple of three years ago. And Gerald and I went in the house of an old man, an old man in this house, and he sat there. And I said to him, what was your village like? And he had been in a village in what is now Israel. And he described every house, every tree, every person. It was the childhood memory of what he'd grown up in. And um, he'd never seen it since, and it probably doesn't exist now anyway. Um, and it's that sense of personal loss and personal memory one has to recognize. And so, the proposals now for yet further annexation of the West Bank and of the um, settlements in the Jordan Valley, I think have to be challenged, have to be opposed, and there has to be an end to the occupation and an end to the siege. I've been uh, altogether nine times in Palestine and Israel, and I was an election observer in 2006 in Gaza, uh, in Rathen, where I observed the attempt, well, it was successful, the attempt at holding an election then, but also the disruption of that electoral process. And so I feel that there has to be an international understanding of the need to support the rights of Palestinian people, and I had hoped to win the general election in order to lead a government that would give full recognition to the state of Palestine. Jeremy, I mean, you mentioned uh, the, the hand of history, but uh, of course, Britain had a major hand in that history. Uh, there are obviously a number of countries around the world um, who subscribe, or the majority of the United Nations subscribes to the idea of the two uh, state solution, uh, recognize Israel. Increasingly, many, many countries are, in, are recognizing Palestine. You think, given Britain's historic role, that is what the British governments should be doing? I do think they should be doing it, and Britain's historic role is huge, as you quite rightly draw attention to. I referred in my first answer to the Treaty of Versailles and the mandate process. The process was that mandates of various European colonies that had been under the influence of others, uh, like the Ottoman or uh, Germany or whatever, um, were then handed as a mandate to various countries. And Britain was given the mandate, the Palestinian mandate, France was given the um, Syrian and Lebanese mandate, and so it went on. And Britain, therefore, had a very special responsibility in all of this. And um, there was, this was also influenced by the Balfour Declaration, Balfour Declaration of 1917, which is a very short document in which they 
Hitler said that there should be a place for Jewish people to live in Palestine, but it should have full respect to the rights of Palestinian people that were already living there. And it's that part of it which has not really been carried out at all. And so I do think Britain has a very special historical role in this. And um, therefore, a British government fully recognizing Palestine would be, I think, a huge step forward. And it was one that I was looking forward to taking. Well, I mean, you, you will have seen that uh, over the next couple of days, uh, various uh, EU leaders are coming together to talk about what sort of action to take in the event of uh, the promise of this new government about to be sworn in to annex at least 30% of the West Bank. But you will also have seen, um, because you'll be part of it, there'll be, there's been an all-party uh, group of MPs, 130, I think, uh, parliamentarians. You can tell me if I'm wrong with that number. Parliamentarians and former parliamentarians, including Chris Patton, the former chairman of the UK Conservative Party, a former, a former governor general of Hong Kong, all saying that... Um, you know, if this annexation should proceed, then the, the British government needs to, to uh, also uh, consider sanctions. I mean, what do you what do you think about that? This whole party move. It's um, very interesting and quite surprising that such a large group of MPs of all parties should support this letter, and uh, there are more who support it who uh, various technical reasons because very few people are around parliament at the moment um probably didn't sign it at the first call and so don't run away with the idea it's only 130 it's more than it's more than that and um the european response is similar on this as indeed the responses of quite a lot of people in the united states the trump plan basically uh, makes jerusalem the capital of Israel, east and west Jerusalem. It annexes a large part of the West Bank. It takes into um, Israeli, uh, into part of Israel, many settlements all along the Jordan Valley. And what follows would resemble the Bantustan policy that South Africa tried to impose on the majority black population at the height of apartheid. Not my words words of people writing in the New York Times and other places that have described it as that. And uh, I was in touch yesterday with a number of people in Israel who are opposed to the policy, as well as obviously been in touch with the PLO uh, and others. This policy, the Trump policy, if carried through, will have a massive international reaction. And it would mean basically the end of the idea of a two-state policy because how could you then have a state which in, in effect was a series of islands of which it would be very difficult to travel from one to the other without the approval of the occupying power and uh, I think it's um, beyond unfortunate that um, Trump should send Mike Pompeo to Israel now to have a discussion with Netanyahu, who is um, a sharing, job-sharing prime minister, um, at a time of the coronavirus uh, pandemic when people are not supposed to be traveling at all. This is um, absurd. We have to oppose the Trump plan.
Yeah, I mean, I was interested to hear you mention the Pompeo visit because I was going to ask you about that. Uh, as you say, at the time of a pandemic, it seems quite extraordinary that the Secretary of State can find time to drop in to see uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and what have you. But there is some degree of speculation that actually even the United States government is getting slightly cold feet about the speed uh, and the plan uh, to annex um, and maybe coming under some pressure from Middle Eastern allies. I mean, do you think there's, the, do you think there is a, a, some serious head of steam press building up to try and stop this? I mean, I also note that a lot of Israelis don't actually believe that Netanyahu will actually do this. Um, but, but who knows? Well, I mean, what do you think about that? Well, it's not a policy that's come out of thin air because if you look back over many, many years of um, settlement policy, of encroachment, and all the other things that have happened towards the Palestinian people in the West Bank and the encirclement of Gaza. It is not uh, a policy that doesn't have lots of precedent. My suspicion is that the Trump plan in its current form may not go ahead, but there will be annexation of the settlements. There will be some encroachment on the uh, on the West Bank and this will then be presented as it's a big improvement it's not as bad as the original Trump plan the reality is the occupation must end the siege of Gaza must end recognition of the state of Palestine must proceed and that surely is something that I think we have to stick to and it, it may be that in this sort of strange coronavirus world where parliaments are not physically present, parliamentarians are not physically present in the same numbers they used to be. When I go into the House of Commons, it's very strange. There are sort of like 50 MPs in the chamber that's to, that can take 650. There are very few people about. So everything is done by telephone and online. It's not the same as the one-to-one -one conversations, which can be very, very powerful. And so I do think there's going to be a growing head of steam on this and the role that social media will play is absolutely huge in this and I hope the world will wake up and recognize that yes we want peace yes we want peace through respect through justice and through recognition Jeremy I mean you get the impression that obviously what's very very important for people in the Middle East and in Israel Palestine is security people do want peace for the most part uh, and there must be some concern and some of it's been reported uh, amongst many Israelis that if this annexation goes ahead, the Palestinian Authority could collapse. I mean, I think there have even been uh, Isra Isra some Israeli military leaders warning against this plan. The criticism within Israel, yes, comes from Batsalem, Gushalom, Maratz, and various others. In some ways, um, not so unexpected, but nevertheless, incredibly strong and articulate criticism. But you're quite right, it goes much further through the whole Israeli body politic. You're saying, well, hang on, this is really, really dangerous, and this will cause us greater insecurity in the future, not greater security. And if it then leads to the collapse of the whole Palestinian administration and the, the whole structures that have been built up ever since the recognition of the PLO, then that is bad news for everybody. The reality is the Palestinian people live under occupation 
in Gaza live under siege. And it is simply wrong. In international law, it is wrong. Israel is the occupying power. And occupying powers are supposed to do two things. One is not make fundamental changes that affect the long-term future. And secondly, give themselves a limit to their occupation and leave. What we have here is the absolute opposite. Fundamental decisions are being made on the future, such as uh, annexation of the settlements. And uh, the uh, Israeli government and Netanyahu certainly has no plans to leave at the present time and indeed politically relies quite heavily on the settler vote anyway in order to be elected. Palestinian people within Israel also have a voice in this and the um, uh, political parties on the left in Israel need to be recognized and supported and these alternative voices understood. So a lot of people in Israel, predominantly young but not exclusively so, who do want a different relationship, do recognize there has to be some proper future in which they can live in peace and the Palestinian people do get the justice they deserve. I mean, following on from that, you, you can see that for uh, for the EU, for Britain, for, well, for, 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 for the United Nations, uh, which is, took a very strong stand over the uh, annexation of Crimea by Russia, that essentially uh, a planned annexation of this nature in the West Bank is, is exactly the same. And therefore the European Union does appear to be talking about sanctions. Um, but does it need to be a, a bit more specific about what it intends to do? What sort of sanctions do you think are going to be needed? Well, it's got to be very specific. Um, as you rightly say, when uh, annexations have happened elsewhere, the EU and the UN have taken a very strong view on it. Sanctions on Russia over the um, annexation of Crimea and so on. There are other examples around the world. Um, and the EU also has in its trade arrangements with Israel the human rights clause in the trade agreement which says that Israel has to respect the human rights law as the EU has in all its trade agreements. And uh, since there is a direct threat of sanctions, those sanctions need to be spelt out as to what they are. Sanctions on trade, sanctions on arms, sanctions on, on investment. Because if the annexation of large swathes of the West Bank go ahead, occupation and the occupation of the whole of Jerusalem go ahead, then this is huge. This is, in effect, an end to the concept of a Palestinian state alongside Israel. It calls into question the whole concept of a two-state solution. Now, personally, I want to see a recognized Palestine, uh, recognizing obviously 1967 borders uh, within that. That is what the UN has said, that's what 242 said, and that's what subsequent, many subsequent UN General Assembly and indeed some Security Council resolutions have said. They have all, all said that, and of course, uh, after the Oslo Accords, there was a lot of hope that this might actually come about. But as you know, there are lots of voices across the world now that are saying, well, as you were just saying, if, if this does go ahead, this annexation does go ahead, it, it really does make a two-state solution extremely difficult. And perhaps it's then time to focus uh, on 
how it might be possible to popularize the idea of a democratic, secular, uh, one-state solution. That, of course, isn't the UN view at the moment, but it could be. I mean, do, do you think that there is uh, a long-term potential for this as a model? In the long term, obviously, one would want um, people to be able to live together in one place. What always strikes me whenever I go there is how small the whole thing is. Gaza is very small. The journeys around Israel or around the West Bank are actually relatively short. They're only made long by the number of checkpoints and security um, procedures one has to go through to get anywhere. I think the priority at the moment has to be to oppose the Trump plan and support recognition of the state of Palestine. That will give an international recognition to the cause and the rights of Palestinian people, which has been a long time and very slow coming. I was at school when the um, 1967 uh, war took place, the Six Day War. And uh, I remember then the long campaign for recognition of the PLO, which of course did eventually happen. And by recognizing the PLO as the legitimate voice of the Palestinian people, that was a very important step forward. But we've still got such a long way to go. Imagine you're a young person, a young Palestinian, growing up in Gaza or the West Bank. You want to be able to travel, you want to be able to see the world, you want to be able to make your contribution to the world. And that sense of anger that must be built up that you're constantly under surveillance. So you have to go through checkpoints to get from one part of your country to another. And it's that sense of hope that we have to give to young people. Maybe the Trump plan will be the turning point because it is so crass, so badly thought out, so wrong that in the opposition to it, people begin to realize that actually they've got to go a lot further than just oppose it. They've actually got to support the state of Palestine. Perhaps people are looking ahead to what might happen in November in the US presidential elections. Uh, and I wonder if you, you know, we had uh, the candidate Joe Biden uh, saying a few weeks ago, well, actually he wasn't going to reverse the embassy decision, but there's been a bit of movement from him since. I mean, do you think, really this this trump if the trump administration loses then it's uh, all of this uh, all of these ideas are kind of off the table i don't think it's an automatic i would hope they are but i don't think it's an automatic at all the <clears throat> israeli influence on american politics is absolutely huge as you know and um, the Trump plan is the most extreme version of it from the right in uh, Israeli politics. Um, Bernie Sanders came out very clearly against the move of the embassy to Jerusalem. And it also came out very clearly on the question of Palestine and, and so on. And obviously his influence, the Democratic Party, is big, even though he's not going to be the candidate, sadly. Um, Joe Biden did say that he wouldn't reverse the decision if he took office next January, but he's since rode back from that a bit. I think it's very important that we ensure that the relationship um, with the Trump 
plan is something that is debated in the US up to and including the election itself and that Joe Biden makes it very clear that he will not only oppose the Trump plan, he will not allow the implementation of the Trump plan if and when he becomes president on January the 20th next year. But of course we are seeing so much of this happen um, as we were talking about earlier, almost under the cover of a pandemic, uh, especially when you've got uh, political leaders, you've got much of the media focusing, in many ways, quite understandably, on this pandemic. It does seem that other things are happening directly under people's noses, uh, and they be can become a fait accompli. Uh, and there's less uh, reaction. And there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of coverage of, of what is happening right now in the Middle East. So, Well, the media operates in a kind of herd mentality in many ways. I mean, you, you know this uh, yourself, I'm sure, that when there's a story breaks, uh, one paper after another and one broadcast after another follows the same story. And there is now wall-to-wall -wall coverage of the pandemic. Now, I fully understand that. It is huge, it is catastrophic, it is massive for the world's economy. But we shouldn't take our eye off the ball on other issues as well, on environmental causes, on the issues of human rights of people, the Rohingya people, the war in Yemen, uh, what is going on on the West Bank and in Gaza. We shouldn't take our eye off the ball on these things as well. And so it is up to the media as well to ensure there is a plurality of discussion about all these issues and this is interesting that the coronavirus hits at a time when social media is um, now a worldwide phenomena and everyone who's got access to a computer or a phone has got some degree of access to it that means that the narrative and the story can be set by people other than what we used to um, reverentially refer to as opinion formers. And I hope that there's going to be huge opposition to the Trump plan. And that's why I'm one of the people that supports the letter that's been um, signed by British parliamentarians. And we will keep up that pressure in the British parliament. And you're quite right. It's whilst um, the Trump administration did uh, move the embassy and made a big big show about that. The European Union absolutely did not. And so far as I'm aware, hardly any other country around the world, other than those that are deeply in hock to the United States, have actually done the same. And interesting what you're saying about social media and people telling their own story and what have you, because, I mean, many of the, the actual details of the lives of Palestinians uh, really doesn't get a great deal of coverage. I mean, we know, for instance, in the occupied territories, there are huge restrictions on, you know, how you build new homes for people. Um, not if there are legal settlements, but for Palestinians. And, and one thing that struck me the other day, uh, reading about the situation of um, Palestinians in Israel uh, itself, who, of course, are Israeli citizens, I think they, uh, the Palestinian population of, uh, in Israel is about to about 21% of the, of the population. And yet, they only own 3% of the land. And so there are these constant restrictions on a growing population's ability to house itself. So how these sorts of issues come about uh, and become um, more discussed and reported, uh, I mean, 
do, do, do you think there's some mileage in this? People wanting to know more about what, what it's like to, to live in, in Palestinian territories? I, th I think they do, and I think there are groups in Israel that would uh, that do their best to try and make sure that world story gets out. I was um, on a quite lengthy Zoom call this week with um, the um, uh, Ebart Foundation that set it up as a journal, and it included people from Marat's party in Israel, included Erika on behalf of the PLO, and it was a very interesting debate and discussion and you there saw a plurality of views in Israeli politics which is something that is not normally represented in any of the mainstream media and uh, I do think those voices need to get out there. There are many people in Israel that do not want to live behind walls, do not want to have their government annexing somebody else's territory um, and there are millions of Palestinians not just in Gaza and the West Bank but also in the refugee camps and also the diaspora around the world who passionately want to see recognition of themselves of their identity of their lives of their culture of their values um, of their history and uh, it's those stories those human stories that can actually often begin to change the political understanding on a wider scale the human stories of the suffering of people and the achievements of people trying to grow crops under occupation trying to set up a business under occupation trying to sell things under occupation trying to run a medical service under occupation and those very brave wonderful people that work for the for UNRWA underfunded if I may, because I was at the United Nations last year working for the President of the General Assembly when the announcement came through from the Trump administration that they were going to substantially cut funding to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Uh, you just mentioned uh, the agency there. They, they, as you know, they provide schooling and all sorts of basic public provision um, without which you know, life would be uh, even more miserable uh, for people under occupation. And uh, the, the director of UNRWA the other week, um, based in Washington, said that uh, this year UNRWA has only secured, I think it's about a third of its annual 1.2 billion uh, budget and is suffering its worst financial crisis since beginning operations 70 years ago. And then when you factor in the, um, the growing uh, effects of the pandemic um, in the Middle East and in the Palestinian territories, you really do have a perfect storm. So yeah. money isn't being made up, uh, unfortunately, for the most part, although there have been other member states that have stepped in. But how do we, how do we get the case for UNRWA across and how important it is that UNRWA is properly funded by, the, by, the United, by member states of the UN? It's the oldest special mission the um, UN has. It's from, from the very inception of the UN, almost UNRWA has been there. I was in a refugee camps in Jordan in 2018, and um, I spoke to the director of a secondary school, a teacher uh, of a secondary school. I met the school council and I visited the school and talked to a lot of students and saw the buildings and so on. And um, I worked out that even then, the money they had, the capitation money per student, was much, this was a good school as well, much less than half 
of what would be spent on an average secondary school in this country. That money has now been slashed further. And he was expecting, because the cut had then come through, he was expecting he might even have to close the school like three weeks further down the line. Eventually they scrabbled around, they managed to keep the school going. But it means a lot of teachers are unpaid, it means students don't have books, it means all the basis of education. So I think two things. One is to thank and acknowledge UNRWA for the work that it's done in educating whole generations in Gaza, the West Bank, and in the refugee camps in Lebanon and in Jordan, but also say, look, it's got to be properly funded. Palestine, given the chance, would be a very prosperous, booming economy. We've got a very well-educated, very innovative population, but everything it does is decided by the occupying power. And that is where all of those difficulties come from. So I think we have to oppose the Trump plan, of course, call for full funding for UNRWA, and say, this is for the next generation to get their health and get their education. But you're quite right. The coronavirus is a terrible thing, and obviously very dangerous and very, very contagious very contagious and it can be controlled by social distancing and so on, which is what's happening in this country at the moment. Very hard to control if you're in um, tenement blocks in refugee areas in Lebanon, if you're in tented refugee camps in other places around the world, and if you haven't got the medical facilities in the backup, you haven't got the ventilators, you haven't got the testing equipment, then it's going to be devastating for people and therefore we have to ensure proper funding but also the politics that goes behind the political recognition which will eventually bring the economic liberation as well well thank you jeremy and just finally i'm going to ask you i mean you, there's been an awful lot of pressure on you over the years to to sort of push back and uh, you know let up on your campaigning for the palestinian course but you have stayed the course and the, and the question I suppose a lot of people will be asking is, um, what will you personally do next? Uh, and also, what advice might you have for people who, like you, like us, believe that the Palestinian voice and justice must be heard and achieved? What, what advice would you have for those going ahead in terms of campaigning and what we could all be doing? We have to campaign against any injustices anywhere in the world. This is a massive injustice. We have to campaign to support people when they're suffering under occupation, and that is exactly what that is. And you have to work with people in order to bring about that political change. And yes, there are lots of pressures, but I tell you what, the pressures on a politician in a Western European country are as nothing compared to the pressures on a family living under occupation, not knowing when the next bomb is going to fall, not knowing if they've got food coming, not knowing if there's a hospital around the corner. Those are real pressures, and those are the real pressures that we should support people in trying to deal with. And so I'll be busy, as I've always been, on peace, on justice, on human rights issues. And I've had some wonderful messages from friends all over the region. Friends in Tel Aviv, friends in Jerusalem, friends in Gaza, who've said, thank you for what you did in supporting us 
and all the best for the future because we look forward to working with you and I shall be. Well, thank you very much indeed, Jeremy Corbyn, for joining us and we wish you all the very best. So that's all for us this week at Palestine Deep Dive. Thanks also to the team that made this possible. And until next time, goodbye.